Mark chapter 14. We're going to pick it up at verse number 22. I cannot read it as eloquently as my late friend Bill Fanning, who I recorded on that video you saw in between those two songs. I do not have a voice like him, but maybe in heaven God will grant me a voice like as they were eating. I just can't do that. I sound like a white boy, and so this is what you get. Mark chapter, because I am, right? Uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn and went out of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to them, you will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I'm raised up again, or after I'm raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. And old Peter said to them, said to Jesus, even though they fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, truly, I tell you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. You got to love old Pete. Before we dive into this, let's just go before the Lord one more time. Father, thank you, Lord, for bringing us all here. Thank you, God, for your word that we just heard. Thank you, Lord, that maybe some people are, are here and maybe they're just kind of wavering or maybe they're just just questioning and, and wondering through all of this Bible stuff and Jesus stuff. Lord, thank you that you have sovereignly by your decree placed them here in this room, God, for such a time as this, that they would hear the word and that they would believe in the true and living God. God, may we all leave collectively saying how glorious is our King Jesus this morning. We pray that you would allow your word to be a light into our path, Lord, to sharpen our minds and our hearts so that we may see clearly. It's in Christ's beautiful name we pray. Amen. As I study through the scriptures, I, my, the way my mind works is that I, I often get a lot of questions. Questions come to mind when I begin to read through or when I'm studying through a particular passage. And so I'll read this section, read the section, read the section. And as I'm reading the sections, questions begin to come up in my mind. And, and I don't know if that's, that's how you are when you're reading through your Bible, uh, but I get questions and, and questions that come to me that inevitably emerge and that I'm asked quite often is, is can a Christian go so far from God as to be lost. In other words, how we would frame this question is, can a true Christian leave the faith? Can a true Christian become utterly lost? I'll pause that question. We'll get to that in just a moment. But as I read through this passage, I can't help but to see this question annoy me. 
The question haunts me. The question is right there in front of us, but I'll, I'll get into that in just a moment. I think if we were to just kind of look at this in context, it's probably safe to assume. Um, maybe I shouldn't assume things in Scripture, but I think it's safe to assume that Judas is no longer there. He probably left the party by this point. And they're singing, and you know, Judas is, you know, Jesus just called him out. Like, one of you jokers going to betray me. And, you know, everybody's just like, it ain't me, it ain't me, is it me? And they begin to self-reflection, remember that? And so we all know who it is because we, we're, not, we're not in this with the disciples. We're outside of it 2,000 years removed with this book in front of us. And so we know who the traitor is. We know who the one is going to betray Jesus Christ and his Judas. So I probably think it's safe to assume he is no longer there. Now, if he's no longer there, then what we have is what we just see in the text is that there is a bit of a celebration taking place. Passover, they begin to sing hymns, sing songs of celebration that they would sing out of the exodus, out of exile, the same psalms of ascent that they would all be singing. And here they are joyously probably taking a deep sigh. Maybe there, maybe there's some, a uh, little bit of of observation, like, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. It was Judas, that doggone coward, right? They're probably already making the observations. And so here they are, and, they, and it's in this context that they're celebrating, singing psalms from hymns, and they just went through Passover. I do not want to, like, just spend a ton of time on Passover, but I can't skip over the significance of what Jesus is doing with this meal and the celebration of Passover. And it is my reflection on this, and I could be wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, it, it's my reflection on this. Uh, I do admit when I'm wrong sometimes. Um, just ask my wife. It's very, very rare. And the truth is because I'm just, I'm just not wrong a lot of time. But anyway, I'm digressing. Um, the, so, so there's Passover taking place. Now, Jesus is, is likely, it, it, now from what we have written, He's kind of deviated a little bit from the script. Where's the lamb, right? Isn't that a part of Passover? There's no mention of them partaking the lamb. Now, this is an interesting thing because there's a lot of like kind of in the Old Testament, if you read through the Old Testament, you'll see a ton of like just foreshadowing about this coming Christ who is going to come and take away the sins of the world. He's going to be the Messiah. He's going to rule and reign forever. And so we see this in Passover. Now, this was a celebration of when Moses, right? God speaks to Moses, and as a final act of, if you don't get your act together, I'm going to send the, the death angel, and here's the way out. Now, we see this story, we read this story, we're like, God's just a mean God, he's just punishing everybody, and, but we're not seeing the whole story in its broad context. God said, let the injustices will be no more. I will send a death angel. And if you do not, here's the off ramp. If you do not have the blood of the lamb over your doorpost, then I will kill the firstborn. Now, the judgment of God is right there. But make no mistake, the mercy of God is right in parallel with it. That if you think, well, I just mean, well, listen to God. God was telling them, if you do things my way, then the judgment will not come near you. In fact, it will pass you by. And so Jesus is 
commemorating this with them. It's Passover with his boys. And he takes this as some kind of symbolism with them. And now Jesus isn't necessarily like drawing them back to the story of Exodus. But here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's drawing them forward to what is about to take place. What is about to take, like what are we at the precipice of? Come on, somebody. The crucifixion of Jesus. There is no lamb in Jesus' Passover meal with his disciples because Jesus is pointing to, I am the lamb. I am the lamb that will be broken. I am the lamb that will be slaughtered on the cross. And so the significance of all of this is, and the foreshadowing of all of this in this Passover is that when Jesus holds up the cup, right? He holds up the bread. He holds up this bread and says, this is my body, which is broken for you. This is the cup of the new covenant, which is for the forgiveness of sins. So that when we are forgiven, when we repent, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we are forgiven so that one day, Here's the foreshadowing, but here's the glorious thing about Passover. One day that when we meet Jesus, the death angel will pass us by. Why? Because the blood of the lamb has been applied to the doorpost of our heart. Wow, you know, this is crazy, this Bible stuff. Read the Bible. It's pretty fascinating. With all of this foreshadowing, all of these prophecies, all of these celebrations are in line, in light of, are laser pointed on one man, the God man, Jesus Christ, and what he is going to do on our behalf. That if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Christ is Lord and he was raised from the dead, then the blood of the lamb that was slaughtered on the cross is applied to our heart. That when we meet God, the judge, the judgment of God will pass us by because he will see the righteousness of Christ that was imputed upon us. It's glorious news. That's what's taking place here. This is the Passover that Jesus takes his disciples in. Now, if we were to just kind of go through this and then we see what happens immediately, Jesus takes them out and, and, he, and he gives them a prediction. He gives them kind of this prophecy. And it's, you know, we look, the reason why I clustered these two together is because I just think, think this is pretty important. They're in this really nice celebration. They're, they're likely dancing. They're singing, you know, the bad apple from the tree is finally gone, Judas, and, and they're dancing. And then Jesus takes them out and says, I'm going to tell you guys something. You're going to fall away. Now talk about like party crusher. Like talk about like joy kill, Right? We all have that one friend, or maybe not a friend, just an acquaintance. You know, it's just always like doom and gloom. It's always just like Debbie Downer. Y'all remember Debbie Downer from Saturday Night? You know, well, uh, you know, that's just, that, it, 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 it appears that Debbie Downer, Jesus, I mean, like Jesus, could you just not wait a little bit and then like crush their souls? But like, this is what takes place. Like Jesus is about to give them a prediction and then what we're going to see is not just this, this prediction, but this prediction is going to be met with a challenge from those people whom he is doing the predicting to. So let's look at this prediction. You'll find it in 27. And Jesus said to them, you will all fall away. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, striking the shepherds, uh, sheep will be scattered. That's straight language. You could probably look in your footnote in your Bible and it'll point you to a prophecy from Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7, in which it says the same thing. That Jesus, as him being declared as the good shepherd, the one who's going to give life to the sheep, Zechariah here is saying, which is going to be fulfilled. Jesus is saying what Zechariah has just said. Oh, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, if we look at this particular, uh, particular verse from Zechariah chapter 13, we, we notice that I will strike the shepherd. So then what this ought to do is cause us to, to kind of ask the question, well, well, who's that pronoun? Who is the I? Who, who is the I? That, that's the question that we have to ask here. If you read that phrase, I will strike the shepherd, then the sheep will be scattered. The answer is obvious. The answer is God the Father is the I. God is the one who will strike the shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd. If you've been reading your Bible for some time, this isn't a surprise. In fact, we can work our way backwards and see this even in Paul's language in Romans chapter 8 when it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then listen to what he says. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for all of this. So he's referencing there to God the Father did not spare his son. God the Father is the one who strikes the shepherd. And we also have this foreshadowing also, again, all big into some foreshadowing in the Old Testament because it's pretty brilliant stuff. We see foreshadowing. Remember in Genesis, this dude named Abraham, God gives him like this wild promise that I'm going to reconcile the nations through you, through your line. I'm going to give you a son in like, you know, 25 years. He's 75. That's at 100. He's got Isaac, maybe 113. I don't know. Isaac's on their way up. And, and, and Isaac, as a, as a teenage person, should say, I see see the wood, I see um, the, 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 the place where we're going to do this. Where's the sacrifice at, Dad? Where's, this, where's, where's the lamb? Because Isaac could not have been that lamb. Again, it's this foreshadowing of the father was about to strike his son. And at that at the right moment, right? You got you to understand like 13-year-olds, they're just so annoying. And you got to have a 13-year-old son to, to on top of the 13-year-old madness. And so, and so I'm guessing he's sitting there. I, I don't know if he's obedient or not. If he is, then, you know, praise God, the one out of the trillion that were. And, and he's just laying there and he's just like, well, I guess my dad's going to kill me. I don't know. You know, he's been, he threatens me sometimes and I think we took it this far. And, and then suddenly out of the thistles of the bushes, the lamb is provided. Again, foreshadowing on what this is happening. And so we can even go into Isaiah chapter 53. I know I'm belaboring this too much, but I want you to see this. In Isaiah 53, it is the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. See what Jesus is saying here? I will be struck and the sheep will be scattered 
And he looks at his disciples right after this huge celebration and looks at all of them. And he says to them, you will all fall away. That's the prediction, not a prediction. That's the promise Jesus is telling them. This is the, the, the foreshadow, like Jesus is looking at them and telling them, you will all fall away. Now, if we think about this, we, we can't, we can't, when we hear verses like it was the will of the Lord to crush him or, you know, it was the, the father will strike, I will strike the shepherd. We can't see that like, like Jesus is separated from this idea. Like, like it isn't like Jesus is in opposition or Jesus is outside of this whole thing or Jesus has no knowledge of this or Jesus is even opposed to this. Like they are both the subjects of the lamb being taken away or the sins of the world away, right? They are both at work and in harmony with each other. So this isn't some God who is some cosmic killjoy who is up in the heavens waiting to kill somebody. This was the plan. And we know this because even Jesus' own words in the Gospel of John, when Jesus says that I have a right to take my life and to take my life back up again. So this whole idea of Jesus, the great shepherd, being struck is not just Father's idea of him concocting some idea. It is both these same two things working in harmony. Both of these same two people working in harmony with each other. And so he goes to them and he says to them, you'll fall away, you'll fall away, but he must rise. But I'm, I will rise again. I will meet you in Galilee. Like, shouldn't that be enough? Like, if, I, if I'm just being honest with you, if I'm reading through the scripture here, if Jesus looks at us and says, you're going to fall away, but I'm, but I'm going to meet you again because I'll rise from the dead. You know, at some point you, you would think, right, and this is me kind of imposing uh, some kind of self-righteousness, right, upon the disciples because I would say, oh, I would have listened to Jesus. You know, if Jesus told me I would fall away and, and he'll rise again, then, then I, I would have listened to what he said. And, and when we read that and we kind of think, well, why didn't they just listen to what he said instead of arguing with him? I mean, he's, he, they missed the whole beautiful part of the whole prediction. And the beautiful part was, he's going to get back up from the grave. That's the beautiful part. But they can't see that part because they're so focused on, well, I'm not going to fall away. Right? And so this is where we insert uh, the disciples' disgruntledness and their opposition to this prediction that Jesus makes. And so they begin to challenge Jesus. And the challenge comes from none other than the ultimate challenger of the 12. Oh, Pete. Now, I got to give it to Pete because, you know, at least he had, like, you know, the courage to go to Jesus and go to him. Like, man, you have lost it. I'm not going to fall away. You know, I love what he says, like, they will fall away, but certainly not me. Isn't that, isn't that all of us? Oh, I, uh, I, they're the, they're going to sin, but I promise you, like, I, I'm, and we're not going to say it like this, but this is what our heart is revealing. I'm better than them. Jesus you are totally wrong. 
I can't believe how wrong you are. In fact, you're so wrong that I will die for you. I will go to war for you. I will not fail you. Now, we look at this, and, you know, I've got to give Pete a little credit here. Because I can't, I, I think his heart is likely in the right place. I mean, he loves Jesus passionately. But he loves him. And he sees that I'm not going to be the person here. Peter says, no, no, no. Listen to me. I've got a better plan, Jesus. And what Peter is doing here is he is misunderstanding the truth and the nature of his own heart. Perhaps it's arrogance. Perhaps it's just him looking at the other 10 at this point and saying, no, those, those, are, those are some morons, not me. It's kind of this self-unawareness that he has of his own heart, that he doesn't see that even Pete... Even me, even you could have the tendency to disobey God and to fall away in a sense for a moment. Because Pete was like two things. This ain't how political uh, revolutions take place, Jesus. You ain't been reading your history book, Jesus? We got we to go to war. And then, then, then the other thing, he's like, I'm not, these guys are a bunch of losers and cowards. That's not me. I'm not going to fall away. And Jesus is saying, yeah, as, as a matter of fact, not only will you fall away, but before the rooster crows two times, you've already been denied me three times. And so Jesus looks right down in his soul and reveals to Peter in fact, I love, I love Luke's account on this. You, you, later, you go back and read Luke's account. Jesus looks at him and says, Simon, Simon. I, wait a minute. His name is Peter. Because Jesus renamed him Peter, which means what? You remember? Rock. You know what Simon means? Shaky. Not a foundation. Going with the whims. So he looks at Peter and he says, oh, shaky, shaky. You will fall away and you'll deny me and you'll tell everybody you never even knew me. How about, how, <laughs> could you imagine Peter in that moment? Just feeling the weight of what is about to take place. But he is adamant in this that I will not fall away. And Jesus says, not only will you fall away, you'll deny me three times. Now, that is in light of the context in which we've just read. The Passover meal, the celebration, Jesus giving them this um, pressing, pressing view of about what is about to take place in the matter of just moments. You'll all fall away. You will all fall away. Peter says, you are wrong. Not only are you wrong about me, but this is just not how things are going to go. And Jesus says, not only that will you fall away, but you all will deny me. I've got just a few observations. If you're still hanging in there with me, I'll be out the way in just a moment. Just a few observations on this text that as I just kind of read through, I begin to ask questions and I, and I see things 
within my own self. And the, the first thing that I wrote down is that my, my heart is prideful. My heart is wicked. In fact, there is a bit of haughtiness in our own hearts. Certainly not me, Jesus. You see? I wouldn't do that. I'm not like those less than folks. I'm not like the other morons you, you called. I'm not going to do it. There's a bit of, not a bit, there's an amount of pride and arrogance in Peter that he just can't see because of pride and arrogance. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit, not haughty like, you know, good looking person, haughty spirit before a fall. I'm sorry, my mind is just weird. Pride goes before destruction, and a haughty spirit goes before a fall. Here's Peter right here, <laughs> pridefully, arrogantly saying in the eyes of Jesus, you are dead wrong. And the scripture is being revealed from Proverbs 16, 18. And then the haughty will be brought down. What happens to Peter? The haughty was brought down. Because pride comes before a fall. This is diametrically opposed to every world view that is being forced down your throat in culture. There's even songs written about it. Listen to your heart. I mean, right? You remember that song? Yeah, old song. Somebody like, what? I've never heard this song. Right? Listen to your heart. What is your heart telling you? Isn't that what we say to people? What do you feel? Just follow your feelings, boo-boo. <laughs> like, let me, let, me, let, me, let me break this down for you. Like, Jeremiah would say that the heart is so deceitful. Who can even understand it? The culture, every, every worldview breaks this for you and says, you need to follow after your feelings and your heart. And if anyone is opposed to that, then you need to just remove them from your life. They're not worth having in your life. In other words, when people are trying to speak truth to you, you ought to not listen to them. Why? Because you need to listen to your heart. Peter was emphatically listening to his heart, which was incredibly wrong, in saying, I will not, you don't know, like those, those are the idiots. You're talking to the wrong guy. Our hearts are desperately wicked when we are turned upon ourselves. And Jesus is making this observation here in this text. The, the second thing here is, and if you, and if you hear that, you're like, then what do we do? Well, wait a minute. Okay, we'll get to that. But another observation here is that we have the word of God. And when we have the word of God, you know, and I, and I understand this sounds archaic, but we have to listen. We have to follow and submit our lives to the word of God. And so there was this idea of there was going to be no submission 
to when Jesus says, you'll fall away. There was no submission to his word. It was arguing. It was like, well, you don't know. Who do you think you are? We have to have this word of God be the authority of our lives so that we stand on it and listen and follow the word that he has given us this word that is a lamp for our feet, a light for our path so that we just don't take this and just, well, that's just, you know, that's archaic and that, you know, that's just whatever. That's not for today. No, this is the word. We follow, we listen, we obey the word of God. This is what God the Father spoke down on the transfiguration of Jesus and his words were very simple, very clear, very concise. Follow Jesus, obey his word. And the same disciples who audibly heard the word of God. Peter was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Audibly heard the word of God. Heard it booming from the heavens. Follow him. Listen to what he says. Obey his word. And here's Peter in the face of Jesus, listening to Jesus say, you're going to fall away. And him saying, no, I'm, you're wrong. There, another observation, and most of this is from like Peter and like his just buffoonery at this point. Is that is that we this ought to just cause some kind of self-reflection and like make us realize like the influence that we have on so many other people. Peter says, I, I'm not going, and then what do the other disciples? Well, we ain't either. Later, Peter goes fishing after all this uh, stuff goes down, and all the other disciples says, Well, I guess I'll go with you. There's an influence that Peter has on these people, and, and he's probably not using his influence correctly at this point, because there should have been some, you know, I mean, I mean, fat-headed Peter, it, you know, and everybody sees it, right? And so, and so at some point, one of the disciples should say, you know, Peter, you're like, oh, and I don't know, like a hundred, I'm going to stop listening to you. But it does, they just don't get it. They're following blindly after Peter. And so this ought to just cause some self-reflection within all of us. It's like the influence that we have on people around us. Is it a good influence? Or are you listening to the, or are you, you allowing uh, those other people to hear, you know what, just follow your own path, follow your own heart. You don't have to listen to the word of God. And there's another observation and I think this is the one that I think impacts me the most, if I'm just being honest with you, is that there's this little drama of being gracious to others uh, when they have fallen, right? Because we can look at this story, and it's easy to look like some of these, <laughs> like I just, I just laugh at some of these when I'm reading the Bible, and I see like how stupid they are sometimes. I'm just like, your mama dropped you on your head when you were little, you that dumb. But the, but the honest truth is, is it's us. We're the not-headed disciples. We're the ones who are like, I will never fall away. I would never do that sin. I would never do this. I would never do that. Yes, you would. Why would you? Because your heart is wicked. Because you are both a saint and a sinner. Because you have not been made perfect yet. 
Yes, you have been saved by the grace of God, but yes, you will also fall. And for the moment that when we look at this and say, well, I would never do that, you don't know me, you are at a very, very high risk of being in danger for your own soul if you look at this and say, I would never do that. Your soul is in danger, my friend. If you sit in this room and you say, I would never do this. I'm not going to sin like that person. I'm, you know, I'm way more deep in my sanctification than that. You got to break out all the theologically right terms. Your soul is in grave danger, my friend. I mean, these guys just have been in the upper room with Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And then for us to say, well, you don't know me. I wouldn't sin like that person. You're in danger. I want to go back to the question that I first asked is that then, then if, if there is a chance that we can fall away, if there's this, this obvious conclusion that you got one guy who did fall away, then the question comes and ignites my reformed soul is can a true Christian lose? Can God lose someone? I would... I want, to, I want to answer that. And like this, like we see how the story unfolds because we know the story of Peter. We see how the story unfolds that with God, failure is never final with the saving grace of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter gets, I don't know, you know, three strikes, you know, a hundred strikes. And he, in our minds, he's out. But when I review scripture and when I go through scripture, that's, that's not the God that I serve. Like they didn't strip Peter of him being one of the now 11 because he's, God didn't do that. In other words, Peter wasn't strong enough to get out even if he wanted to. Now, Jesus did not reject Peter on account of his failure. Why is that? Because he loved him. Because he loved him. And for anyone who God has extended grace and freedom and lavished his love upon you and has saved you. He loves you. And he's not going to lose you. The question isn't, and I think this has been framed in such a terrible way in the world of Christianity that it just makes me sick. Can I lose my salvation? That is the wrong question. The proper question is, can God lose? Because who saved you? Who? Jesus did. Well, I, 
You know, I, I went down the aisle and said the prayer, and I did this, and, and I did this, and, and me, and, and I, and suddenly you have this works-based religion that you have made yourself the God of your salvation. Because it wasn't you that saved you. It was Jesus that saved you. So the question isn't for these 11 remaining here is that can they have been lost and would God have chose to lose them? He's not going to lose them because he saved them and he loves them. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus, you need to hear that and let that be like an, a fresh breath of air that you can't outdo God's saving love. Like you are not good enough in your failures for God to be up in the heavens. Like, that was it. Right? You, you have failed way too many times. And I just can't believe I would extend my grace to you. How dare me? Like, come on. Come on that's how ridiculous this is. For you to think that I could put the shoes on of the almighty sovereign God and tell him when it's time to let me go? Nah, bruh. That ain't how it works. You know why it doesn't work like that? Like, I realize I just went really ghetto on all y'all. But do you know why it doesn't work like that? Because the sovereign God of the universe does not lose. He just doesn't. If God loses, then he is a loser. I mean, just think about that. Is that the God you serve? The almighty God of the universe that governs every square inch of the universe does not lose. And Jesus understood this rightly. When Jesus said in John chapter 10, my sheep hear my voice. They follow after me. I will not lose any of them. They will not be snatched out of my hand. I mean, that's pretty clear right there. So then the question is, can you yourself snatch yourself out of God's hand? You're just not that good. And, and this is why I love this. I guess this, is, like, this is so, so freeing. That despite my failures, that despite the many times that my heart is going to be wicked, and despite the times that I'm going to say, God, my way is better than you, I'll do it my way, I cannot stop God from loving me. I mean, just... I just just breathe. Why? Because he loves you. Peter had this reality check. We know, we know the story, Peter. Hey, you were a little kid, okay? Of all people that the Bible uses, <laughs> a little child comes up to Peter and says to Peter, oh, you were, you were one of those Jesus dudes. Oh, no, I'm not. A child, Okay? Like who, on the, in the right mind, is threatened by a child? Unless it's Ezra. You should be threatened by Ezra. But who in their right mind is threatened by a child? Peter is. I don't know Jesus. Well, Peter would go on and pin his letter to the church, and, and he would talk about, um, 
he, he would quote how God, um, that he knows the haughty from afar. In fact, Peter goes on and, and he says, for God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. Imagine how hard that was for Peter to write that line. God gives grace to the humble and the proud he knows from afar. He, right? How hard was that for Peter to write that one line? Peter's reminding his, his followers, like, hey, listen, that was me. I was the haughty. I was the proud. But then there was a grace that God extended to me that I could not extend to myself that roped me in. Why? Because he loved him. And he loves you. Jesus would take his boys right here. God, those whom he would save, he would not lose. And these cowards, as we know from Acts chapter 2, come boldly coming out of the upper room, proclaiming the message of freedom, freedom for all. The question, I'm done. The question then is, well, what about Judas? Yeah, what about Judas? We know that Judas was wicked. We know that Judas throughout his life was greedy. But we also know 1 John 2.19 when it says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, John's identifying people who come to the gathering and they say their one thing and they leave. And the reason why they left is because they were never even a part of us. The question then is, are you in Christ? It's the most secure place you can be. It's in Christ. He loves you. And he will not lose you. He loves you.